Hi, and welcome to the Verity La Poetry Podcast. I'm Alice Allen. In this podcast, we interview poets who've been published in the journal and we discuss work that's important to them. In this episode, I chat with Rebecca Jessen, who's the author of the new collection, Ask Me About the Future, which has just come out with University of Queensland Press. We begin by discussing the idea of a queer utopia, which is one of the organising themes of this book. We also discuss how the book unpacks where mental health intersects with queerness, along with issues like visibility, queer elders, socioeconomic factors, gender, through to things like being an older sister and living in Brisbane after growing up in Western Sydney. Rebecca reads her poems Triage and I Am Not Myself at All, both of which are included in the new collection, and shares a poem by the poet Jenny Johnson, which is called In the Dream. We hope you enjoy this episode. What an intoxicating concept, the idea of a queer utopia. Yeah. Can you maybe summarise that for people to whom that might be a sort of a new thought? Mm, yeah, for sure. Um, I guess like I was looking, you know, it was like the academic angle and then there's my own personal take on that and some of the queer theory I was reading was by this theorist called Jose Munoz and his idea about queer utopias was you know we're living the time we're living in now is not for us as queer people you know we have to look forward to the future we have to write our own narratives um you know he called the present straight time and you know we're sort of enforced to live under patriarchal rules in this current time and you know so it's about it's sort of this radical idea of just reimagining our lives as they might be and you know that can take really everyday forms I think sometimes when you hear the word utopia it sounds a little science fiction um what I discovered was that it was you know it can just be really normal stuff like not letting go of your partner's hand in public feeling safe on the street feeling okay shopping in different sections of a clothing store that kind of stuff yeah, for sure. Yeah, and the book addresses this from so many angles, I think. One of them that's really interesting to me is you address really head on the intersection of mental health and queerness. Mm-hmm. You really don't shy away from showing us what it's like to have to deal with, you know, a mental health line, for example. Yeah. And I guess the way I interpret what you're saying about queer utopia and the normality of what that could look like is, yeah, maybe a utopic ideal is there are fewer young queer people having to call up a suicide helpline. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Or none at all. Yeah, and, like, you know, the idea behind that is because they've grown up in a world that doesn't tell them that, you know, what they are or how they feel is wrong or different. You know, like, can you even imagine growing up in that kind of world and how radically that might shape the way your mind grows? Well, I think about this a lot because I grew up, I was born in 1982, so I was sort of hitting my teenage years in the early 90s and at that time I was like, oh, I definitely like girls. Um, yeah. 
but there were very few representations of people like myself in the media. So yeah, when I when I look now and I look around me now and I see sort of the the generation behind me living in a world of you know queer eye and um god what a terrible example to start with um <laughs> you know like just just this sort of um real like what to me seems like an explosion of queer visibility yeah um there are moments where i think oh geez it must be easy and then i read a book like ask me about the future and i'm reminded in this really important way it's only easy in a very tiny like slice of socioeconomics Mm. um race you know all these factors have to coalesce for you to have an you know quote-unquote easy queer life in 2020 yeah that was more of a rant from me than anything than a question (laughs) no I, i completely agree with you but you know there are still all these intersections that mean that our experiences of even stuff like coming out or having relationships with our families can be so different and, you know, there are still, you know, that's not always a safe environment even if we are getting more visibility in the media. Yeah, visibility is just, it can feel like the end goal and in reality it's really just the beginning of the conversation. But, yeah, sure. you know, we got Queer Eye, so... <laughs> Um, before I rant too much, would you like to read something for us to give us a sense of your work, either from the book or maybe from Verity Law, whatever you'd like? Yeah, maybe, um, I guess since we're, we sort of kicked off with this, um, topic of mental health, I'll read, um, a poem that was published on Verity Law about two years ago, um, which is also in the book. Um, this one is called Triage. The kind woman on the end of a line will say this. I have to ask. In the present, you wait. Yes, I was 14. Only the one time. Yes, family. No, no one. The kind woman on the end of a line will notice the catch in your breath. That's okay, she'll say. I don't need details but you will talk about these things one day. She'll ask about your plan. Yes, I think about it often. That unwavering expanse of ocean slipping quietly into the blue night. It's an exit strategy, you know, if it gets too much. Tread carefully here. You have to tell these details to the right strangers. Do not raise alarm with your blasé attitude towards your own death. Be cool, smile while you talk. No, not this week. I guess it's been a good week then. And how to measure chronic emptiness. That's what this is, right? The kind woman on the end of the line will say, you don't sound empty. Well, that's something then, isn't it? And what is sound anyway? but another diagnosis to unstick. When I read that poem, in my mind I made the woman that you were speaking to an older woman and that got me thinking mm-hmm. about the presence of elders in this book. I think there's a really, yeah, it brings to mind this question for me of do we have queer elders yet? 
So Bowie's in there. Brokeback mm-hmm. Mountain is in there a little bit. Not that I would necessarily say that that film was a great uh, roadmap for anything, but um, yeah, yeah. I, I wondered about your thoughts on that. Are there are there people that you think of as here's somebody who's forged a path ahead of me, somebody who I can look to as perhaps not an example, but yeah, an elder of some some sort. Hmm. That's a really good question. I think that's a tough one, like even in terms of growing up, you know, I grew up in southwest Sydney and there's a very conservative little part of Sydney itself. You know, I wasn't out to anyone until after I finished high school. You know, I didn't have any role models. I didn't have really any access to queer books or queer media so it was sort of alone in thinking that I was what I was and I didn't know anyone like me and then I guess like getting past that stage and coming out eventually and then you know discovering this whole world of queerness um this is so cliched but like the first Maybe, like, people I looked up to as, like, people who were, you know, appeared to be being themselves and being in their queerness and visible and still doing what they cared about was, like, Tegan and Sarah for me. I had, a, like, a deep obsession phase for a few years. Yeah, I think just seeing that visibility helped me come to terms with living a life on my own terms. Yeah, it makes me think of the question too of like the responsibility to come out as a public figure, which is something that I go back and forth on a lot. Like I used to be really mad at Ian Thorpe. Uh, Yes. (laughs) And then I'm like, that's not fair. You can't be mad at him. But I was for a long time. I'm like, you have so much power, you know. Yeah, it's so hard. And like, you know, I can't imagine being, you know, that level of, famous I guess or you know known to everyone and having that you know it is a bit of a burden I imagine but at the same time like it's it can be so life-changing when you know for other people you know when they see someone like that being celebrated and then they know that they're queer just like them but I think that can make a huge difference yeah although even as we're saying this I'm thinking because you use the phrase just like them I think one of the one of the other great strengths of this book is that it complicates a neat representation of queerness because there yeah. is this intersection of socioeconomic status. There's the question of our relationship to technology and how yeah. that shapes how we think about ourselves. Gender is a question that is worked with in the book as well and like there's, there's, there's acceptable queerness. I think there's queer visibility insofar as it's acceptable. Yes. If it conforms to what, you know, the heteropatriarchy wants queerness to look and act like. Mm. Yeah, I guess blue is the warmest colour would be another kind of terrifying example of that, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's very very male gazy, very um, 
lesbian representation on film is still abysmal um, just in terms of having representation that isn't about the male gaze. You know, earlier this year I watched Portrait of a Lady on Fire and it was just like, it was just incredible to have like, to watch a film that was completely devoid of the male gaze was like, I don't think I've ever watched anything like that before. Me neither. That movie is a, a, a faultless. Like, yeah. Yeah. Stunning. Yeah. We're going to go down a whole queer film rabbit hole. We need to <laughs> not do that because we need to talk about poetry. Um, I'm wondering if there's a poem you'd like to introduce from another writer here that might expand on what we're talking about or not. Absolutely. Um, it's a little bit of a long one. Um, if that's okay. Yeah, great. No worries. Sort of it ties in nicely, I think, even with this idea of queer utopias. And, um, so the writer is Jenny Johnson, and she's an American poet. Um, this is her first full-length collection called In Full Velvet. And I read it, I think I read about it on Lambda Literary, and I read a review and just sort of knew that I had to get my hands on it as a book that really embraces lesbian identity and visibility and representation and to seem to, like, she just really gets it. She gets that discomfort and what it's like to be both visible and then invisible as a lesbian. Um, so this poem is called In the Dream. I was alone in a dyke bar we'd traversed before, or maybe it was in a way all our dives, merging together suddenly as one intergalactic composite, one glitter-spritzed black hole, one cue-stick burnished down to a soft blue knob, picture an open cluster of stars managing to forever stabilise in space without a landlord scheming to shut the place down. Anyways, I was searching for someone there whom we hadn't seen in years, in what could have been sisters, babes, the Lex, the Pint, the Palms, or the E-Room. But the room had no end and no ceiling, though I could see all of our friends or exes with elbows up or fingers interlocked on tabletops singing with boomerangs. Maybe the tables were spinning too, I can't be sure. But just as a trap that trips before, hammering a mouse is not humane, the dream changed. Or the alarm that I carry in my breast pocket in my waking life was sounding. Because in the dream, three people on bar stools who were straight or closeted but more importantly, angry, turned and the room dwindled like a sweater full of moths eating holes through wool. Or they were humans, sure, but not here to love, with jawlines set to throw epithets like darts that might stick or nick or flutter past as erratically as they were fired. You could say their hostility was a swirl, nebulous as gas and dust, diffuse as the stress a body meticulously stores. 
like how when I was shoved in grade school on the blacktop in my boy jeans, the teacher asked me if I had a strawberry because the wound was fresh as jam, glistening like pulp does after the skin of a fruit is peeled back clean with a knife. I was in the dream as open to the elements, yet I fired back, and I didn't care who eyed me like warped metal to be pounded square. I said, do you realise where you are? And with one finger, I called our family forth, and out of the strobe lights, they came. <laughs> what a great last line. Yeah. Far out. Covers so much ground, that poem. Yeah, definitely sort of ties in with what we were talking about, about community as well and spaces for queer people. Yeah, yeah, and again, playing with that idea of the idea of the dive bar should be a relic of the past, but in reality you go like, you know, 10Ks out of a metropolitan centre and there isn't even a dive bar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just nothing. Yeah. yeah. Actually that brings me to another thing I wanted to ask you about. So the the book is sort of set in two places, if you could call it set. Mm -hmm. There are poems which reference where you grew up in Western Sydney and then there are more Brisbane poems. I wanted to ask about moving from those, between those two communities, both as a poet and also as a queer person. Is there, what is your sense of how those spaces have affected your writing and how they've changed over time, things like that? So I moved away from Western Sydney to Brisbane. I was 21. You know, it was a huge shift in terms of, where I had grown up and what I had known life to be like, sort of moving away to somewhere so incredibly different in Brisbane, geographically, climate-wise, but even, like, Brisbane's a lot wider, for example. You know, I grew up somewhere very diverse, but it wasn't diverse in the sense that gender presentation or different sexualities weren't generally accepted. And so I came to Brisbane, you know, as a young queer person and definitely felt a shift in how, you know, how people looked at me. I didn't notice that I was getting stared at in the same way, but I get stared at when I go back home. Like even now, something that used to bother me would be, you know, going home and people just giving you that long, that long stare, trying to figure out something about you. So I've tried to over the past 10 years come to terms with that and then I guess you know as a poet I when I was living back home I I hadn't started writing yet so it wasn't until I came to Brisbane that I took up writing and started writing poetry a few years after that and so it still feels a little strange to go back go back home and you know I think there is something about going back home to where you grew up and in many ways, you, I find that I regress to the person that I was, you know, who is a much more passive version of myself now for many different reasons, family and otherwise. But, you know, it'd be interesting, I guess, hopefully at some point in the future to read some poetry in, you know, back home in my hometown in that area just to see how that feels even because I haven't, I haven't done that yet. So I've only really 
known myself as a poet in Brisbane. I really strongly relate to that. Yeah, having an identity tied to a place. It's like I'm safe to be this person here, but if I try to be that when I go home, it's going to be way more difficult. Yeah, yeah. I feel like one of the poems that really encapsulates this idea from the book is the long poem that makes up the centre of the book, which is called The Mm -hmm. Birthing Suite. Mm. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that one? Yeah, sure. It's kind of funny having it, you know, as the centre of a book and in many ways, you know, my family are my centre. You know, I have a very close relationship with my little sister and, you know, I think the poem came out of all of those different intersections that are difficult and uncomfortable but still tender and loving. And, you know, when you grow up with a certain kind of family and, you know, there are different dynamics within that family. Um, You know, when you're, you know, I'm an older sister and, you know, I guess for me that's something that, you know, has shaped how I see the world and my relationship with my siblings is, you know, at the core of that and this sense of, I guess, duty to be there for other people I think is what, you know, being an older sister kind of taught me was how to how to be there for someone. Um, and that that long poem, yeah, it sort of comes out of a, a somewhat traumatic experience, not necessarily for myself. Obviously it was a, you know, a fraught time, but just that finding a way into talking about the nuances of those kind of relationships and even with, you know, some of the things in those poems about my relationship with my mum and trying to capture some of that difficulty and a lot of what goes unsaid between family members and then also just this, you know, overwhelming sense of tenderness and protectiveness about my sister. And then, you know, at the same time that that was happening, it was the one-year anniversary of the Yes Vote. So it was such a, again, like a really strange moment of time to be thrust back into my hometown you know my nephew was born on you know that day the anniversary and it's just like spend the whole day in hospital and then driving to and from places and it was really kind of uncanny to be in a completely different space knowing that moment in time meant something important but also like the current moment that I was experiencing was important, but they felt very separate. Yeah, and there's a really strong sense in the poem of shifting between these multiple worlds, also multiple periods in time, jumps back and forth between time. And, yeah, as you said, it really tracks Mm -hmm. those unexpressed things between family members in a really beautiful way. So, yeah. Thank you. I want to loop back around to where we started. Yeah, there are so many so many interesting themes in in the book, but I think mental health is one of them that's probably worth coming back to. And I'm interested to know what is keeping you mentally healthy right now, if anything. <laughs> mm. <laughs> A good therapist, um, which is also 
part of having privilege to have finally found someone who you know I can trust and who trusts me and you know like it's I've had so many so many therapists over years and you know most of the time didn't have access to someone who I could pay so it's sort of you know you get whatever's left for the people who can't afford to access mental health care you know the system is just terrible in that way but so now I'm lucky enough to have found someone who I can work with on some of these things and so that's you know that's one part of what's helping me I guess in in isolation is you know just having monthly check-ins um and I think just you know on a different level I was thinking about you know when this all started I just started my PhD this year and I was feeling a little buying into my self-fulfilling prophecy of when something good happens in my life immediately a terrible thing follows and like of course I'm like oh I started my PhD now there's a global pandemic that's clearly like I've clearly shifted something in the universe to make this happen, which is obviously not true, probably. Um, but, you know, that's the way that our minds work. And then I've come around, I think, in the last month or so to actually being really grateful to have my PhD project at the moment because I think what keeps me sane right now and in general is having having a clear project. Like, for me, it's not enough generally speaking, to be a poet, to just that freedom of just writing anytime doesn't quite work for me. I need I need structure and I need some kind of support around that. So having, you know, having my PhD project now means that I can't spend all day staring at the internet feeling terrible. I have to read and I have to write and that's really what's helping get me through right now. Yeah, there's nothing like a big, meaty project. Although that said, it speaks to your self-motivation that you're able to focus on it because you could spend all day staring at the internet if you wanted to. And I have. <laughs> we all have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, a deadline is uh, very motivating when when the university are like, well, we're not moving any of your milestones. So I'm like, okay, I should, I should do my PhD project now. <laughs> Yes. Look, a deadline can be a beautiful thing. Definitely, yes. Uh, would you like to read one last poem to take us out? Absolutely. Um, this is a poem I don't get to read very often because there have been a few times where I've had it queued up to read and then have read the room and went, hmm, I don't think so. <laughs> so I can't read any kind of virtual room here, so I'm going to go with it. And I did try to read this in the library once and there was a complaint about the totally legitimate words I used. So this one is called I'm Not Myself At All and it's a found poem um, and all of the text is taken from an exhibition catalogue that was also by the same name and the artists were exploring this idea of queer utopias but what that would look like for a lesbian audience so this is I'm not myself at all the lesbian is not a woman swinging on all fours you can't fly you have to crawl the queer future is low low key low culture a frisky cat daddy cruising the catty cornered residue of salt slicked rubber boots 
Lesbians reveal the distortions, fleshy, flowering, shag carpet, oversized domesticity, cat toys woven with lint. Languorous ladies make unlikely queer heroes, but the lush stillness of time travel won't cut it in the real world. The futuristic, everyday lesbian seems to be waiting, practicing below arts, fucking by hand, the vibrations of body amplified. Despite the queer setbacks, this new world is not the historical hangover of pink linoleum. A classic Hollywood close-up exits a psychotic, bedazzled lesbian The camera climbs the stars, a single shadowy cat grows to giant proportions, pressed beneath the glass. Her own image raises questions, enigmatic rainbow objects move in double time. Her vagina is close at hand, but you can only approach it from below, crawling towards the queer horizon. A cat's face stirs a glistening, first to beckon, then to stroke. Take it from me, this utopia is emphatically unfinished.